Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Bill Bishop. Bill, how you doing? Hey, Andrew, how are you? Hi, everybody.、Uh, we are okay. We recovered from that pretty bad storm over the weekend, and.、Uh, I'm going on vacation, so I'm a little sick. I get sick every time I go away. It's I can't. I just hate not working. I guess my body just says you got to work. <laughs> yeah.、Um, so I apologize in advance if you hear some coughing or a little bit of a, a, a sort of a different nasal sound in my voice. Yeah. Well, you sound great. Bombay, as they say. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm just happy to have made it to the podcast today. You were dealing with power outages over the weekend. I've been dealing with internet outages for 72 hours now. So just getting us both on Zoom feels like a victory here,、um, and you know I'll take it at the end of this week.、Uh, yeah, it's good to be back. I mean, I, I posted some pictures earlier this week, and and it was、uh, we had quite the storm in DC, although not much rain, thankfully. So nothing like the crazy winds, a lot of trees down,、uh, nothing though like the flooding that's been going on around、uh, Beijing and Hebei and Tianjin, which is looking pretty devastating. Sadly,、yes. I think a lot of people have died. So very unfortunate. Yes, and that's where we are going to begin today. The news out of Beijing. I'll read from the Associated Press. China's capital recorded its heaviest rainfall in at least 140 years over the past few days, as remnants of Typhoon Daksuri deluged the region, turning streets into canals where emergency crews used rubber boats to rescue stranded residents. The city recorded 744.8 millimeters of rain. Which is twenty nine point three inches between Saturday and Wednesday morning. The rain destroyed roads and knocked out power and even pipes carrying drinking water. It flooded rivers surrounding the capital, leaving cars waterlogged while lifting others onto bridges meant for pedestrians. The number of confirmed deaths from the torrential rains around Beijing rose to twenty one on Wednesday after the body of a rescuer was recovered. At least twenty six people remain missing from the rains. Among the hardest areas hit is Zhuzhou, a small city in Hebei Province that borders Beijing's southwest. On Tuesday night, police there issued a plea on social media for lights to assist with rescue work. So, Bill, the reason I read all those details is because I'm trying to give people an idea of how shocking the photos and videos are. I, just the details of what actually happened. In and around Beijing, the past week or so are pretty staggering.、Uh, what else should we know about what's going on this week? Yeah, it was an absolutely astounding amount of rain that fell. I think、uh, in some places, at least in Hebei Province, they some places might have gotten over a meter. And this is,、uh, I mean, the, some of the the videos coming out from、uh, Georgia and Hebei, where in places the the water is like ten, three to four meters deep, so ten, twelve, thirteen feet deep. And、mm-hmm. uh, it's already one of the things that happens in all these kinds of disasters in in the PRC is、uh, very quickly the information gets limited.、Uh, it's it's you know there's physical damage to infrastructure, so some places lost mobile signals,、uh, lost internet access.、Um, there are also places where there are already reports coming in that, for example,、um, you know limiting sort of what you can post for certain areas based on sort of your IP, like your your. Geolocating you so that stuff isn't getting out. Okay,、um, and so I mean, there's a there's a playbook for how they handle it. There's the ongoing rescue.、Um, we're never going to know the exact amount of damage or how many people died.、Uh, I think as of this morning, it was twenty something people. I, I, that's sort of being pretty heavily discounted on social media. Yeah,、uh, just that makes the, sense. The given, scale of given the, the images, right? Yeah. And, and the other thing that's happened is that because there was so much rain, there's so much water. And it was overwhelming the reservoir, reservoirs and sort of the flood diversion systems. Is they've had to release lots of water, and in some cases they've had to blow dikes, sort of open up channels to let water flow off, and that has led to flooding of lots of uh, uh, a, a not small number of villages in parts of Hebei, specifically I think around the Georgia city and Georgia itself. And that is a there's a big dispute over whether or not the The、residences of villages were actually notified before this water was released.、Uh, whether they were notified, but they ignored it.、Uh, regardless, there's a lot of places that got a lot more water than they would have just from the rain because they were sort of in the path of the diversion of water to keep it away from more populated areas. And specifically, it sounds like one particular city that is near and dear to Xi Jinping's heart. 
Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you sent me a Bloomberg story on Thursday outlining some mounting backlash among flood victims. And Bloomberg writes, residents of areas hit hard by recent flooding in northern China have taken aim at a key Communist Party official saying he sacrificed their safety to protect Xi Jinping's flagship projects. A hashtag playing off a comment by Ni Yufeng, the Communist Party boss of Hebei province, had more than 80 million views on Thursday. Many people expressed anger at Ni because he called for cities in the province bordering Beijing to resolutely play a good role of moat for the capital. So I can understand why that would inspire outrage. Um, what did you think of that story? Um, it's true in the sense that, you know, we saw it in COVID too. It was all this concept of, oh, Beijing, protect the capital, protect Beijing. And so all sorts of policies happen to make sure that the really bad stuff doesn't get to Beijing. And so there's no question that that is how officials, especially, I mean, Beijing is actually surrounded by Hebei province. And there's no question that that is always a role for Hebei is to make sure that um, it can help protect the capital. Um, in this case, given sort of the water flows, it looks like it's more about diverting water from the newer airport in Beijing and Daxing Airport, which is the southern side of um, southern part of Beijing. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, is the Xi's sort of signature new city that he has overseen the building of called Xiong'an, um, which is south of Beijing. Um, which is, you know, this this incredibly ambitious creation of a whole new city in a place that no one thought a whole new city should be there except for Xi Jinping and some of the planners. Why is that? Is it just a remote location? It's remote. There's not a lot of water. Well, I mean, there, there would be water, water now, not to joke, but they're generally, I mean, part of the thing here too is I mean, one, of the, one of the reports said, at least in some areas, uh, they got more rain in two days or so than they get on average in a year. I mean, a lot of these areas tend to be quite dry. It's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, it's 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 astounding how much rain they got. And nobody, I mean, no government could handle the volume of rain they got without some pretty significant flooding. And so this was about in many ways this is about choices and how do you like who gets a short straw in terms of where you divert the water to. And so but the Shalon project is interesting just because it is a um uh, it's really creating a whole new city. It's supposed to be this modern city, and it's part of uh, Xi Jinping's, you know, a vision he's put forward to uh, return Beijing to sort of its more core functions as the capital city and move lots of uh, enterprises, okay. state-owned enterprises, educational, ins- educational institutions, et cetera, out of the city to relieve congestion and relieve pollution. Um, and so they built this new city. And it's it is very modern. They've added like high speed rail from Beijing, good roads. It's a it's a short commute. Nobody wants to go, right? And so even I think I, I forget the exact day. I think it might have been in May or it might have been the April Politburo meeting. Um, they talked specifically about Shalan, and basically the message was y'all got to go, right? So because because all sorts of state owned enterprises, other. Um, government bodies. I mean, no one wants to leave Beijing because back to the earlier discussion about sort of the the mentality of protect Beijing, Beijing has the best resources for everything. Beijing has the best schools. It has the best hospitals. Yeah. This does take me back to COVID. Yeah. Right. And so, and so, you know, if you, if you're leaving Beijing, you know, you don't want to take your kids to some place that has a new school. It's not the Beijing schools. It's just, it's just like a, it's a whole sort of forced migration of um, frankly, some institutions and people who are, part of a pretty privileged class in Beijing. And so anyway, that's a longer discussion around Shulan. Um, but so one of the bits of anger that is bubbling up is on, on, on Chinese social media is, is just this idea that, you know, these people like in Georgia, these poor people who are being inundated, you know, one of the reasons was to protect this, this Shulan city, which is basically empty because it's Xi's pet project. Yeah. And of course, ironically, the other thing people are pointing out is about two weeks ago, um, one of the many bestsellers that have been written under Xi Jinping's name is that there uh, a new book came out that was on Xi Jinping's discourses on water management. Oh wow! Um, so of course people are sort of like, <laughs> so does this book help us with the flood? Yeah. Does this book hurt us with the flood? What, what do we do? I mean, obviously ob- obliquely because you can't, but it, but it is um, it's it's bad. I mean, not to make light of it, it's a it's a real disaster for a lot of people, and it's also you know it's going to hurt crops. Uh, a lot of infrastructure looks like it was destroyed. There are some photos, you know, videos of bridges, of br- at least one bridge collapsing. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's awful. And it's going to be a long, 
process of drying out and then rebuilding. And so, I mean, it's a pretty awful few days. Oh, yeah. I've watched a few different rescue videos this morning. There was one video involving a baby who was saved that really hit me hard, given that I've got a four-month-old son with me. Uh, But there was another video where it looked like a whitewater rapid in the middle of a street. And this one man was clinging to the door of a car, and he was somehow saved. It was a true miracle. Uh, But all of it just underscores the scale of the challenge right now. Um, And... I wish everyone the best as they work through the aftermath over the next couple of days and weeks. Flooding is just terrifying. Like first and foremost, I hope everyone can emerge safely from all this, but then water can do so much damage to infrastructure and create a bunch of long-term problems. So hopefully the families that are dealing with that outlook will be able to get the help they need over the next weeks and months here. Um, But do you have any final thoughts? No, it, it it is terrible, and it and it is going to be, um, you know, we'll see the playbook play itself out in terms of how they manage the response, both in terms of rescues and recovery, but also control of information. I mean, there was a a large uh, flooding in Chengzhou, Hunan, in two thousand twenty-one, just basically about two years ago, um, mm-hmm. and several hundred people died. Uh, there were some awful videos. Uh, there was a sort of a cover up. Uh, foreign journalists who went in the aftermath were harassed, uh, followed, not allowed to report. Uh, there, there was basically the local government will then local officials will come in and, and do everything they can to control access information and control the flow of information and cover up what they can. Um, it's just going to be a really hard process for, for, I think, a lot of people. And we're, you know, we're never probably going to know the true extent of the damage or toll from this kind of a flood. Yeah. Yeah. It's another echo of some of the most dystopian aspects of the COVID policies that we saw over the last couple of years um, is that limited information. And I mean, it's just it's just it's more than the it's just the way the Communist Party works. I mean, this is how they and this is this is just how they roll. Well, yeah. And, And I experienced it for the first time thinking through like what we would know about how reopening is going and like the information was so opaque that we actually were sort of guessing for a couple months there in terms of how much damage was actually being done. And it sounds like that will also be the case with some of the fallout from this week's flooding. Um, But uh, on a lighter note, I do appreciate the um, context on She's Pet Project, that city. I hope no one ever does that to Washington, D.C. and tries to move out all the non-government aspects of D.C. to some oh, I think it'd be great. Location. Are you kidding me? We put them on a floating barge somewhere in the Chesapeake well, Bay. Should we move the government? I, the government's the worst part of D.C. I, there's all sorts of cool stuff. Nats Park, you know, we got the wizards yeah, government downtown. and the lobbyists, although then real estate values would collapse. So if you own a house here, <laughs> that would be bad. Um, well, no, I like the idea of throwing the government out on a barge in the middle of the Chesapeake. Uh, and, we'll see. And Dan Snyder can be tied to the mast of the barge, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just paddling behind. <laughs> uh, good luck, Dan. All right. So the other big story in China this week was a shakeup at the PLA. I'll read from your cynicism newsletter on Monday. Just weeks after the foreign minister disappeared and the day before the PLA's birthday, She appointed new leadership for the PLA Rocket Force, the group whose remit includes the PLA's nuclear weapons. The purge of the Rocket Force leadership comes amid reports that several members of the previous leadership are under investigation and the death of the deputy commander earlier in July. There has been no announcement as to what is going on, only that there is a new commander and a new political commissar. South China Morning Post reported the proximate cause is corruption. The Financial Times cites two senior foreign government officials saying that the former leaders are under investigation for, quote, leaking military information. So, Bill, we've referred to this a couple times over the last few weeks. What's your reaction to what's happening here as as more of this becomes official? So, so first, I should correct something in the, the what I put on what I wrote in Cynicism this week. Uh, it was the former deputy commander who died. Uh, ah, okay. And and we don't know why he died. Uh, there, there rumors were that he killed himself. Rumors were that he had cancer. We we don't know. 
um, his daughter has written, posted something online basically saying he was sick. But again, it sort of feeds into this broader uh, broader rumors that have been swirling around the Pele Rocket Force for, for at least a month, which um, are clearly something has happened because this kind of a change in leadership um, is, uh, again, they don't say the other people are in investigation. They're just gone. They're just basically like, they're, they're just, there's new leadership. What's interesting too is the new leadership did not come from the Rocket Force. Um, and so it's, it's a very interesting like it just looks very strange, and so it, it's pretty clear something has happened that has caused a purge. And again, we don't know what is going on below this level in terms of you know. Again, there are other rumors of more junior officers being under investigation, some senior commanders being under investigation. We just don't know, but we can definitely, from just this personnel move, this is abnormal mm-hmm. in terms of timing, in terms of who it is, in terms of the structure. Something happened, and so. You know, the, the, the nuclear weapons build out there, they, there's a lot of money being spent on building out the nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons infrastructure. And so it would not at all be surprising in a sort of a normal place that there would be some significant opportunities for graft. What is surprising is that 10 years into Xi Jinping's uh, really, I think, overall, what it looked like a pretty successful attempt at reining in corruption in the PLA and cleaning out the upper ranks of the PLA, um, that if this is really about corruption, that this is a, a massive failure on that of that effort. And really, one of the first sort of obvious signs of, again, if it's about corruption, one of the first obvious signs we've seen of that campaign not being nearly as successful as it looks, as it has been portrayed publicly, is, is this. And you really... When you look at what sort of Xi's priorities are, it, it's pretty remarkable that it's in this rocket forces, which is really where, I mean, especially the nuclear weapon side, it's a huge and hugely important uh, strategic priority for Xi Jinping and, and the PLA. And so um, we're still left scratching our heads what's really going on. On the, on, you know, it could be corruption. It could be, you know, one of the rumors had it that the now uh, removed commander his son has been in the U.S. and his son was leaking uh, information to right. uh, foreign intelligence. I mean, you never know. The other rumor, again, linked up that that um, Ching Gong was involved, the former foreign minister, because he helped his son in the U.S. I mean, there, there's you got to be really careful. These rumors really get a life of their own. But um, the rumors around the rocket force, at, at least it's interesting, is, that, again, where there's smoke in this case, there's fire. Something's going on. And then, of course, I think it is important to look at the sort of context of the the Russia invasion of Ukraine, where we see, of course, that there has been tons of corruption in the Russian military that has been significantly corrosive to the Russian army's ability to fight. Mm -hmm. And so that would have to be, I will guess, a lesson for Xi and the PLA in terms of the risks from corruption. And then this just... This just sort of blows up in their faces a year into the Russia-Ukraine war. And it really, I think, will lead to uh, a prolonged period of investigations, witch hunt. I mean, again, you just like, can they be sure that the rockets are going to go where they're supposed to go when they need to go somewhere? Yeah, I, I honestly, mean, we talked a month ago in the shadow of the Russia insurrection, attempted insurrection, whatever the hell happened there. We talked about the corruption 10 years ago under Xi where people were spending money to ascend the ranks and then trying to make back their investment by abusing that power in different ways. And if that's how people are getting promoted within the military, then yeah, it shouldn't be surprising whatsoever that military readiness and or effectiveness is not great. Um, and so I wonder whether this is a case of she not actually fixing all those problems or she fixing those problems. And then this is sort of a, a newer brand of corruption that they might be dealing with. So so my guess is it's more the latter where a lot of the problems have been fixed. But it is um, I mean, look at the, you know, the U.S. Navy had the whole the crazy fat Leonard scandal. Corruption is human nature. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the U.S. Navy sold some of those people sold out for like hookers and, and a nice dinner. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I know, honestly, I mean, it, people don't necessarily need a lot of money to be bribed, to be corrupted. And I think in this case, uh, again, just back to the earlier point, we don't know what the cause is. If it's yep. corruption, 
there's a huge amount of money being spent very quickly around the nuclear build-out, especially around construction of facilities, like big silo fields out in Northwest China that were- How recent is that? That's the last couple of years. And so so that's a simple, that's like the, again, there's a whole playbook for how you take kickbacks on that kind of construction. Super easy in the old days. The other thing though, is I think that we have seen in other cases over the years where people in the, in, um, have gone down for corruption and officially it's been about corruption, but it's also been about selling secrets. Right. And so we just don't know um, whether or not the investigators inside China know. I, I don't know. I don't know if we're ever going to find out. And even, even if the top leadership of this rocket force who appear to have been purged, if they do get arrested, sentenced, you know, there should be like an official announcement. The reasons given may not be the real reasons, right? It, mm-hmm. It'll be much, it, of course, even if, if foreign espionage is involved, they're going to say corruption. They're not going to say, most likely, it's unlikely they'll say, you know, yeah, we were riddled with foreign spies who now have all of our nuclear secrets. Right. Um, not saying that's what happened. So, but, but it, it is, it is, I think, from, from the perspective of what's been going on, it's, it's a very much, you know, Xi Jinping comes out of the 20th Party Congress. Um, he gets what he wants at the 20th Party Congress in terms of personnel. Uh, end zero COVID, then next zero COVID, right? Um, it's been a difficult year. There are a lot of people died from COVID. Again, they're never going to tell us how many, but the, the best estimates now are like a million and a half people probably died in the COVID reentry re- uh, period. Uh, then you have you know, the economy is nowhere where they wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have the foreign minister who something happened with him. She's guy. Uh, and then you have this, again, looking like she is... Uh, uh, his his signature. I mean, she is commander in chief, right? She is in right. charge of the military. Um, the, you know, he, there's like the commander in chief responsibility system. Technically, this is his problem, right? He's responsible because not of his only dodge. that, it's been his signature. You know, I mean, Xi Jinping right. economic thought is not faring all that well these days. No, so 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 in a normal time, and I'll just and then you have the floods, which are terrible. So in a normal and 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 now you've got the Beidaiho, where we'll talk about that. They're going to disappear for two weeks. So she's going to be out of the news for two weeks. So there are going to be a bunch of rumors that he's in trouble. Yeah. Um, I would say, in spite of all the things that I just listed about him having a bad year, I would be shocked if he's in trouble. So we'll, we can, when we come back, when I get back from London, we can redo our day, like the next podcast in two weeks. Well, we can go through any of the fun rumors that have cropped up. Last year at this time, they were bubbling up that there was a coup underway or there was going to be a coup. But I will say that it has been a very difficult year. And so I think to your earlier question, what does that mean? What, how do, I, think, I think this will probably lead to uh, not a realization like, oh, but sort of a revelation like, oh, I've been too tough. We should sort of loosen up and open up. And you know, it's going to be more of like, we got to harden even more. We have right. to be even more paranoid. We have, to, you know, we have to do more to root out sort of the potential spies and people who don't support us in the system. And so I think this this could potentially be setting things up for a pretty rough few months that also dovetails with this um, the revised counterespionage law, which came into effect last month. And then uh, I think on Monday or Tuesday, the Ministry of State Security launched its own WeChat with its first post, which was about basically of the entire society needs to mobilize. <laughs> yeah, it was a no, pretty no, chilling I mean, it's, welcome it's to chilling. Weibo. And, yeah. And it's it's too long to read, but in the in the um uh, August first cynicism. Uh, you probably uh, listeners have probably read it. Or at least I guess this this podcast is is a, is for everybody, not just paying customers. Um, I translated the whole release on it, and I mean it, it is it is it is it is chilling, and I think it's just a broader sense of a hardening of the system, a paranoia. There maybe there are spies everywhere. That again, I think will run counter to the the uh, the sort of the the messaging that's coming out of say the economic technocrats about we're open for business, everything's back to normal, blah, blah, blah. Right. And so I think it's setting things up for an even more, even tenser or more difficult next few months. Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes Xi Jinping reminds me of the drill meme. Keep yelling at me. You're only going to make my opinions worse. Um, and you know, as things get tough over there, it's only going to get more dystopian. the The first line of the WeChat post from the MSS was: "Counter espionage requires the mobilization of the entire society." Yeah, that's the headline. Yeah, that's the basically title. encouraging people to spy on their neighbors. And, um, and we'll and we'll put a link in the show notes. I just unlocked that post. Oh, so great! People, if they want, can go read the full. 
first public WeChat for the Ministry of State Security. There's also a link to a reporting platform where inf- you can be an informant and you can go in and report on other people. And interestingly, oh my gosh. the MSS yeah. site has it, you can toggle into English and it has a whole form where there's like a box for informants to put in their information <laughs> and then, no, literally, yeah. and then inform on people. And so, you know, things like this historically have not played out particularly well. We in the US, of course, have, you know, see something, say something. This is a little bit different, I think. Yeah, it's chilling. And um, people should be aware of the full extent of how grim things have gotten now. And that post is just another example. And also, it's easy to get lost in the day-to-day news on Sharp China here. But when I step back and listen to you read out all the different calamities that the PRC has been dealing with over the last six or seven months. Um, that's pretty staggering in its own right. You it's know? a it's a it's a really hard country to to run in the best of times, and this is a really tough period. Um, I, I think it would be hard for any leader to deal with it. Um, yeah. The only thing I'll, I'll say too on the paranoia, you know, we were talking about the MSS, WeChat, and this sort of the counterespionage law. Back to the PLA stuff that you also have to go back to the Chin Gong stuff, because, again, one of the rumors we don't know, but one of the rumors is somehow connected to foreign espionage. And so what what I think matters is what the inside the system, the security services, the discipline investigators, what they think is going on. If they believe there's a foreign espionage nexus, even if there's not. That's going to lead to, I think, a lot of sort of reverberations inside the system as part of a sort of a an even heightened, I mean, more heightened sense of paranoia. Well, okay. So my final question before we move to a couple US-China items, did we ever really find out what was going on with some of the generals who were purged at the beginning of Xi's reign? Because uh, there were a number of big tigers caged when she took over. So how much detail did we get in terms of what they did wrong? just as an indication of whether we'll ever learn what happened here. We got a lot of uh, reporting on how corrupt they were, uh, a lot of reporting uh, and, and how so they sort of corrupted the system because they were taking bribes and their subordinates were taking bribes for promotion. So they were um, effectively, you know, you couldn't be confident the PLA could fight. You couldn't be confident that some of the weapon systems actually would work. Okay. Um, part of that too was they weren't she's guys. Right, they were promoted by other leaders, mm-hmm. uh, so it was all it was all sort of wound up in uh, real corruption had to be dealt with, plus power consolidation. This now it does not. There, there's no reason to think this is about power consolidation, right? Right, because given what this you know, is she's problem. on his third term, we're out of the 20th Party Congress. Th- this is really more about corruption and or something else. And I think you know the corruption again. I it's. Very possible it is just, it is just corruption because the, the sums of money are staggering, and it's just not that hard to siphon off a few tens of millions of dollars, especially if you got a kid overseas. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it was quite common, you know, people's kids overseas, and you know, all sorts of stuff got paid for college education, houses, cars. I mean, U.S. companies used to do that. So and so bureaucrat's kid would be, oh, my son's in, you know, going to NYU or wherever. All of a sudden, son would have a car. You know, some <laughs> large company would take care of it. Yeah, you know, it was sort of the way you do business, and it's un- untraceable. Or was or was back then. Well, it's not now. Uh, much to the chagrin of a couple PLA leaders, perhaps. Who knows what the hell is happening? Actually, yeah. but um, a few quick U.S.-China updates here. One note, I don't know whether you had any follow-up thoughts on the Intel lobbying conversation we had last week, but I will highlight for everyone that we discussed that story on Sharp Tech as well this week, and Ben gave a good 360-degree view of what's going on there from Intel's perspective. Um, We can link that episode in the show notes, and people can check it out. It released this morning, so Bill, I'm sure you haven't had a chance to listen to it. No, so what did he say? What was like the high-level summary? Well, so the high-level summary is we had a fascinating discussion of China's push into the legacy chip market and the trailing-edge chip market and some of the concerns that's inspiring around the world. And then uh, as far as Intel... He understands why Intel would look at this and say the subsidies in the Chips Act are not enough to cover potential losses if of the we're China, of the removing twenty five percent or thirty yeah. percent of the revenue, even as 
some of that revenue is also inflated because China's been doubling up on orders in anticipation of a ban. Um, and mm-hmm. at the same time, he did say that um, he finds some of the public comments pretty distasteful. So again, there's there's a lot of nuance to this particular story. Uh, but well, and, and I will say uh, we have a wonderful group of, of Sharp China listeners, uh, including some senior uh, executives in the semiconductor industry. And I heard from one, I uh, had a long conversation after our podcast release last week, um, who called to assure me that there was no such sort of campaign as had been rumored. You know, we talked about this, sort of the rumor that was going around DC about some efforts to change the narrative. And this person said that, 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 you know, that, that rumor is wrong. Okay. Um, And, you know, it is DC. It is very interesting that some version of that, again, like Beijing, these rumors go around and the fact that they're out there is kind of interesting. It is interesting just because it's part of the firmament. And, so, but but they assured me that none of that's happening, and I think that um, I, I will say also that I think what's clear from the that meeting a couple weeks ago or whenever it was that the chip companies had uh, with senior officials from the Biden administration mm-hmm. is that the October seven controls are not going to be rolled back. What, what really is in play is whether or not uh, some of the loopholes and some are, are plugged, and how they're plugged if they're plugged, and whether or not there are any more restrictions. And I think that the semiconductor industry probably will be able to blunt uh, some of the more hawkish attempts inside the information to to really plug the loopholes in a more uh, significant way or to impose new controls would be my guess. But okay. I don't, that's a guess, slightly, slightly educated guess. Well, it should be interesting to watch, you know, and whether the, if the rumors that some of the chip companies are pushing for removal of certain national security people or think tankers. Um, if those rumors are unfounded, that's great. I think regardless, the tension between the self-interest of American firms and potential interests of the American government, are that's going to remain relevant for years yeah. to come. And, and, and it highlights why decoupling is so difficult and or impossible in certain and, contexts. And one thing I'll say is the PRC behavior matters is because I, I've learned that, you know, the October 7 chip controls, which I think were surprised most of us in, in their scope and severity, oh, yeah. were the reason they were p- be able to be pushed through was because of the PRC reaction to the Pelosi visit. Mm-hmm. And that there was such a, such a, from the perspective here, and in other capitals, there was such a sense that the PRC was really over overreacting, and there was so much. Oh my God, maybe this could become a you know a real crisis, and you know maybe they're really serious about invading Taiwan at some point. Then, it, then it, that was a, a very much an enabling of the more hawkish folks to say, "Hey, we've got a package," and it, it blunted any efforts to lobby it down or whittle it down because nobody wanted to stand up and basically, in the face of what the PRC was doing over Taiwan, they just didn't have the the juice to push back. Yeah, well, and I also think all of it was happening in the shadow of Russia invading Ukraine and the whole world being semi caught off guard by Putin actually having the audacity to do that. And I think that opened a lot of eyes in Washington. Yeah, about- no, that, that did. And then, and then, then specifically the, the, the Pelosi visit and the reaction. And so, you know, and barring something that the PRC would do in the next few weeks or months, I think that momentum has shifted so that there, there really is going to be harder to do, uh, and I could very well be wrong, but I, I, I will just guess that it's going to be harder to do something even more um, uh, sort of onerous uh, on the semiconductor industry in the, in the near future. I mean, you've seen that a bit, I think, with the, the long rumored investment screening mechanism, which, which has effectively been lobbied into near meaninglessness mm-hmm. from all reports. We may find out the latest report is it might come out this week or next week. So maybe, you know, it's every, every month or so there's a report that's about to come out. So maybe this will be the month. There you go. Well, maybe you'll jinx it into existence. You'll get sick every time you go on vacation. Maybe there's big news <laughs> as you hit vacation here. Um, and speaking of tech intrigue, there was also this story. We don't have to go very far into it today. I'll read from the lead of the New York Times this past weekend. The Biden administration is hunting for malicious computer code it believes China has hidden deep inside the networks controlling power grids communication systems, and water supplies that feed military bases in the United States and around the world. 
according to American military intelligence and national security officials. The discovery of the malware has raised fears that Chinese hackers, probably working for the People's Liberation Army, have inserted code designed to disrupt U.S. military operations in the event of a conflict, including if Beijing moves against Taiwan in the coming years. The malware, one congressional official said, was essentially a ticking time bomb that could give China the power to interrupt or slow American military deployments or resupply operations by cutting off power, water, and communications to U.S. military bases. But its impact could be far broader because according to U.S. officials, that same infrastructure often supplies the houses and businesses of ordinary Americans. Um, And it goes into more depth about some of the concerns that government officials have regarding this malware. I'm not sure what to make of that story. I'm not sure whether you've had any conversations in the wake of its publication, but it's obviously pretty unsettling. And I just want to put a marker down and I imagine we'll be revisiting it. It is. Uh, I think a couple of things. One, it's, it, it sounds like that was part of this Microsoft vulnerability that was exploited. I think it, it, you know, would, would speak to the need for more secure systems. Uh, mm-hmm. One, two, Nowhere in the article did they bring up the question of the possibility of whether or not the U.S. has done that to Chinese systems. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, not that that makes what the Chinese allegedly have done better, but I think it's important to have that perspective that, it, that I would be surprised if the U.S. hasn't done something similar. Um, and frankly, probably they would consider them negligent if they both see each other as adversaries. Interesting. Yeah. Isn't this what you do? Look at, I mean, look at Ukraine. I mean, again, this is another thing from the, what bits have dribbled out publicly from the Russia Russian Ukraine war is sort of all you know the, the 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 attempts by the Russians to do stuff to Ukrainian systems the way the Ukrainians have fought back in the cyber realm, you know, with a lot of help from the from the U.S. Uh, again, I think that the U.S. It would, I'd be pretty surprised if the U.S. doesn't at least have the same capability or hasn't actually done something similar in China. I, that's a guess. I have no idea. So. It, it, totally. Well, that's my regular guy assumption as well as a non-natsec, yeah. you know, expert. Um, I am under the assumption that everyone is hacking everyone yeah. at all times. So, so we should be concerned about this. But this is not just like the oh my god, China bad. This is like oh, we better the U.S. better secure systems better because in Microsoft that they're the, you know, the, if they're there where the, um, the exploit was, they better improve their systems because this is just going to keep happening. Right. If it's not China. It would be Iran or it'd be North Korea. It'd be Russia. I mean, a long list of countries. Yeah. Well, and speaking of Microsoft security, I believe this was downstream from the malware that was discovered on bases in Guam, but there was also the email hack, uh, of, Commerce Secretary Gino Raimondo. And so that's our next item. Gino Raimondo is planning to visit China in late August, according to people familiar with the matter. Part of the Biden administration's effort to reduce tensions between the world's two largest economies. Um, That was from Bloomberg this week. Do we know anything else about this trip? Anything we should keep in mind as she heads over there? I mean, the only thing is so far, Bloomberg reported it, but it's also other people have talked about it. It's just that there, there are very limited expectations for any deliverables. And that, I mean, the Bloomberg piece did mention that the secretary was kind of wondering why go if I'm not going to get anything like my predecessors basically got nothing when they went, or not my, my colleagues, not predecessors, my, my colleagues, Secretary of State, mm-hmm. um, Secretary of Treasury, Climate Czar Kerry, you know, they basically came back with little to nothing in terms of deliverables. Um, and so I think that, the Commerce Secretary, again, it's, just, it's a valid question. I think that the answer is that the president wants her to go, so she's going to go. Right. Um, there has been another um, this, this week. The, um, if you remember uh, uh, when Blinken went, there was a big hubbub online. I think we talked about it in the podcast when he got off the plane. Um, you know, there was like there was no red carpet. There were red lines, and he was, meted by, he was met, greeted by a quote-unquote junior official. A lot of great a, Twitter Young Paul, who was the, the head of the, um, the like the North American, the, the director general of the North American department, um, what's it called, MEDAS, uh, the, the, at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And, you know, of course, the commentary was wrong. It was like normal protocol, that, whatever, but that's sort of, there's reality, there's uproar, right? It's they, sort of not, the, not always the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, this Young Paul has been in D.C. this week, and he met with uh, the senior State Department official who deals with China. He met with the senior National Security Council director who deals with China. And then he also had a meeting with the senior Department of Defense official who sort of 
deals with China um, and Asia. And so that's interesting. I think the U.S. also extended, you know, one of the outcomes of the Blinken visit in June was that Qingong, then Foreign Minister Qingong, was going, was invited to visit the U.S. And the hope was he would come August, September timeframe as part right. of this sort of putting the floor to the relationship, but also as part of uh, laying the groundwork for Xi's visit to APEC in November. And obviously, Qingong is not coming. Uh, so well, we Wang get Yi, a Wang Yi. Wang Yi, who former foreign minister, now again foreign minister, uh, he, the U.S. issued an invitation, according to the State Department press officer, um, at, at this visit from Yangtao this week. So we don't know any of the details, but the U.S., it looks like that sort of foreign minister visit from the PRC is likely back on in the next, I would guess, six to eight weeks. Ah, okay. So there may be a reciprocal visit um, after yes. a procession to Beijing. I, I did ask someone at the State Department if they'd offered um, diapers or baby formula to send back to the uh, former foreign minister. Sort of <laughs> Whatever case, but... he needs. Yeah, take care of him. <laughs> Uh, you never know, right? Where we don't know. Sorry, I shouldn't make that joke. But I mean, again, rumors. Uh, we don't know if that child is Qingong's, but that certainly is. Uh, Bill, even even people who. Well, well, let me just say though, even people who who when the Qingong really like he was removed, there were people I I talked to who were very well dialed in and have very good sources who insisted that it was a health reason. Nothing's going on in the last few days. They've all been like, hmm, yeah, I think the kid's Something. real. Something's, <laughs> going up, right? Something's yeah. going on. So, so I'm I'm more confident now that that whatever's going on, Qingong, part of it does involve this young boy and his mother. Interesting. But again, all, we don't know for sure, but I think I would I'd be willing to put a little more money on it than it would have a week ago. But sorry, as a new dad, you, do you, yes. you need, do you need some some baby formula and diapers? Too? We can always use more diapers. That's an easy win. So hopefully, someone over at State is listening here and can send those home with Wang Yi or whomever else uh, chooses I, I, to visit. I should have, you know, I, I I'm sorry I don't have any left, but you know, we had kids. In Beijing, I think it's you know there were a lot of people who didn't have diapers. They just had. Um, holes in the back of the baby clothes oh really wow yeah they're very effective we haven't um, gotten to you that get a little point cold yet. in the winter but but they do <laughs> they are i think in many ways more environmentally friendly i yeah i mean look the environment i am uh my hands are not clean right now uh, but we'll see uh that's a reference to my environmental damage nothing more um Manu says, Andrew Bill, longtime listener of Sharp China and Sharp Tech. Here is a headline I noticed in the Atlantic the past week. China doesn't want to compete. It wants to win. The story echoes your own question as to whether dialogue with China will really result in a meaningful improvement in relations because China wants something fundamentally different from the relationship with the United States. The author, Michael Schumann, stops short of suggesting what the alternative to dialogue may actually be. So two questions for you. One, what do you think a workable alternative to dialogue and diplomacy might be, practically speaking? And two, does this reflect a broader recognition, this article, does this article reflect a broader recognition within the media that a softer approach to China won't reap rewards anytime soon? What do you think, Bill? So for two, I don't, I don't think it does. For one, I think there really is no good alternative to dialogue and diplomacy. Uh, that said, dialogue and diplomacy alone don't work. So I think what you're seeing from the Biden administration and from what people are suggesting is diplomacy is not just with China, it's with all sorts of other countries in the region and around the world to yep. sort of weave together um, sort of a multi-layered approach to dealing with issues around China. And I also think that it's very important that ultimately the, the U.S. has confidence that if it's if it sees itself in a real competition with China, that the way to win is to be better in the U.S. Mm-hmm. The way to win is to, to stick to U.S. values and, and, and to actually compete as opposed to simply just constrain or contain. So in terms of alternatives to dialogue, if we did not play ball as China is, you know, withholding meetings until X, Y, or Z happens, are there consequences to that decision? Because like, I, I think that would be like, practically speaking, obviously nobody wants to go to war, either like a cold war or a hot war. Um, but the intermediate option would be to say, 
we're not going to indulge this ransom type approach to just basic engagement at, a, at the diplomatic level. I mean, I think, and we've talked about this on, on prior episodes, it's always better to be talking. The question is, what price do you pay for those talks? And so if, if you defer or stop doing things that make sense from your interest to get a talk, to get a meeting, that's a mistake. If you say, we'll keep talking, but we're going to keep doing what we think makes sense because we're unhappy with XYZ or our allies are unhappy with XYZ, that's fine. And that, that is a, there are different ways to engage. Engagement mm-hmm. just to engage and basically saying, okay, we're going to not do a bunch of things so that you'll let so-and-so go visit Beijing. That, I think, is a mistake. And we, at present, are not totally clear on what exactly has been withheld or, or what concessions have been made. Is that right? We're not clear on what, if any, concessions have been made. That, that I think, is a fair statement. Okay. Um, and, you know, and again, mixed signals. We, the U.S. really wants cooperation with China on fentanyl. They, the U.S., I think Blinken, um, in, the, in the run-up to the Blinken visit, I think there was hope on the U.S. side that the Chinese would agree to some sort of a working group around fentanyl again. Um, and then the Department of Justice went and issued some indictments. And I think there were some sanctions. And so I think that, you know, there are different parts of this government have different views. And so that certainly the DOJ wasn't waiting around for a working group. They were just going to do what they wanted to do or needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, but I think, again, it's just, it's, it's just the, the broader lesson is we're not going back to where things were. And I think that increasingly is, more, is most people get that. There are some folks who are um, still sort of pushing to sort of go back to the old days of engagement, but there are fewer and further between now, and they're just not really taking that seriously anymore. Yeah. Well, and to his second question, does this article reflect a broader recognition that a soft approach to China won't reap any re- rewards? Well, the question within the media, I mean, I think I think in, in the folks who spend more time sort of looking at China, I think it is it does recognize, recognize a broader rec- it is a broader recognition that there is a um, that the ways the ways of the past didn't really work. Yeah. The media, the media is unclear. Depends on which media you're talking about. Yeah, well, there's a, just a broad spectrum of opinions out there, and um, I actually think that's pretty healthy. Like, there's a lot of debate as to what the best there's course not is. Groupthink, in spite of the groupthink hysteria of a few months ago, there isn't groupthink in the U.S. Yeah, uh, if, if you want to look at groupthink around the U.S., I could point to another country that has a lot of groupthink about the U.S. At least in official media. <laughs> yeah, um, certainly at the not, party level. That's not the that's not the case here. As much as I think people found it to be comforting or thought, I mean, it, the fact that people could argue that there's groupthink means that there's not groupthink. Right. It was an easy column Sorry. to write. And no, <laughs> yeah. just for anybody who hasn't been listening to us all year, back in March or April, there was a, a streak of like four or five straight weeks where there was a new editorial every other day about groupthink on China in Washington and why it was so concerning. Um, but to your point, all and, of that and I mean, I of... just, I, I, those drove me nuts because I mean, I'm in DC. I talked to lots of people. I had no idea. I mean, there, I didn't see it. I mean, I saw emerging sort of clustering of views around certain things, but they were not coerced. And there were plenty of people I talked to who were, I mean, again, it was, it was an exaggerated caricatured case that fit really well in parts of the media ecosystem. Right. Sort of pushed it was where people wanted to be anyway and so it worked and it was pushed by um sort of you know influential people and that's fine it whatever it, it like I, you know as we've talked about being on the podcast you know the u.s china relationship if they can't figure out some way to not go to war it's a disaster for everybody and i think that is what's happened over the last you know year especially was people were getting very concerned that things were just spiraling out of control mm-hmm and I think that was a valid thing to be worried about. Oh, absolutely. But, but there's only so we much should all one be side worried can about do. It. We should all be worried. But you also have to recognize that there's only so much one side can do. Right. Right. It takes two to tango, as some people would say. Yeah. And as a newcomer to this world, um, one of the things that's been interesting to me is that I think there's sort of a myopia that takes hold where it's all about the U.S. and how we're dictating the terms of engagement for the uh, relationship. But also there was this note that the U.S. wants Japan and South Korea to agree that each nation has a duty to consult the others in the event of an attack. And Washington is pushing for a historic joint statement at Camp David this month. 
that sort of thing would not be possible if people in South Korea and Japan weren't equally concerned by what has changed in China over the last 10 years or so. Um, And that's the type of thing that people in Washington writing op-eds can sometimes overlook as they sort of chart the course of this whole conversation. Well, and also you get the PRC media critique is, you know, they're lapdogs or they're being coerced by the U.S. sort of completely denying these countries agency over why they would actually be concerned with the PRC um, and the developments, especially under Xi Jinping. I mean, Japan, South Korea, I mean, South Korea was a Japanese colony for for how long? There were some horrible atrocities committed in, you know, by Japanese soldiers in, in South Korea, comfort women. I mean, go long, long list. You could do a whole podcast on the, not just an episode on the Japan, South Korea relationship. Um, and so the relationship has been, you know, they're both U.S. allies. Uh, it's been, it's recently had some, I think the comfort uh, women issue was a, a big sticking point. It, it just, it, it really was from the U.S. perspective, it was bad that these two countries were not talking the way they should be. Mm-hmm. From the PRC perspective, that's a good thing, right? That the more fractured the sort of parts of the U.S. alliance structure are, the better it is for the PRC. Both those countries have reasons to want good relationship with China in terms of geographical proximity, uh, economic relationships. Uh, North Korea, both have reasons to be very concerned. North Korea, economic over-reliance, uh, as well as sort of the, you know, they, the Japanese have a territorial dispute with the PRC over the, what the Japanese call the Senkaku Islands, the Chinese call the Daiyutai Islands. And of course, there's the Japan Chinese history and Japan's invasion. I mean, there, there's a whole, whole bunch of reasons that the Japanese are on the one hand, you know, need the China market. On the other hand, are really worried about a rising, powerful, increasingly assertive or what they consider maybe aggressive PRC. Right. So they're just, from the U.S. perspective, getting these two countries to be more willing to work together, to be more willing to work together as part of the U.S. alliance structure is, again, back to our discussion of sort of the diplomacy around China. It's not just U.S. to PRC diplomacy, it's U.S. to allies diplomacy about China. This would be, I think, a victory for the Biden administration if they can get, as what's described in that Financial Times article, if they can make that happen. Right. And that's something that uh, it appears the Biden State Department has done a really good job of over the last two or three years. State Department, maybe the National Security Council. But again, a lot of this wouldn't be happening, but for, I think, the way the elites in those countries who have to think about the rise of China. And and that's what bugs me. Right. It's a lot of this is not driven by the U.S. It's driven by Xi Jinping and, and what he's trying to do for China. And that's what bugs me about the discourse in D.C. and American media sometimes is it's sort of this blinkered outlook where all these other countries who have similar concerns don't matter. Or, and there are certain things happening on the ground in China that are not invented by hawks or whoever else. Um, but uh, we will continue to monitor the healthy debate that we have in the United States of America here. I want to close out, though, Bill. We talked earlier about going on hiatus for the next two weeks. What are the Beidaiha meetings that party officials will be taking over the next two weeks? Is it basically just a holiday or, or what exactly does it entail? So Beidaiha is a, a seaside resort town, I think now with high-speed rail, a couple hours from Beijing. I, I went long, long time ago. It's very nice. It was a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour train ride back then, and uh, it's it was a, a seaside resort where um, Mao Zedong uh, used to go spend weeks during the summer around this time. And he would bring other leaders and they would have they would conduct official business, have meetings there. And then throughout the Mao era, really through Deng Xiaoping, this period, the first two weeks or so of August, were always where the, the leaders would decamp to this cooler seaside resort. Um, and that they would actually have meetings. And Retired officials would be involved. There would be meetings with the elders. They would sort of work out policies, major personnel decisions. Uh, under the Hu Jintao era, this supposedly stopped where they would, some of the top leaders would still go, but supposedly they wouldn't have these big meetings. That has never been publicly confirmed. I think there were still some meetings and some of the elders were still involved. But um, from a political importance, it sort of has declined in importance over the years. Now in the Xi Jinping era, especially in the last six or seven years, where there really are no elders with any significant influence, it 
doesn't appear that it's the way it used to be under Mao. I mean, they, they go on vacation. They certainly may have some meetings, but it's not like they go to Beta and they close, you know, then suddenly the top leader is told what to do, or there's a change in policy that, that is not what, um, appears to be the case with Beta anymore. So people talk about the Beta meetings, mm-hmm. you know, I like to just call it the Beta break because we really don't know exactly what's going on. So, so anyway, the, the point is though, is it, it's not what it was in the Mao era. I think you, you still see some commentaries about all these big decisions will be made in the first two weeks of August. I would be cautious with those kind of commentaries. Okay. Uh, it's quite possible. They really just caught all on vacation. They do some work, but they also, I mean, it's a pretty hard job. Right. And so it, just to be clear, everything shuts down outside of the Beidaiha gathering, right? Like there's just not really any news for the next. Well, I mean, the, the country's still going on, but you have, um, you know, you, you probably won't see Xi Jinping in the media for 14, 15 days. You won't, mm-hmm. you know, historically, the sort of official they don't announce it, but the official start is when. Uh, one of the popular members meets with a group of experts who've been invited to have spend their holiday in Beta. Like they get the golden ticket for their 10 day, whatever vacation and their families to go to Beta. And so today, Tai Chi, who's on the standing committee and is basically like she's chief of staff. You know, he met with 50 something of these experts and, you know, they took a picture and then that's the signal that then Beta has started. Okay. And, and so it's still very much it's still very old school where you just sort of go stark, but obviously, you know, stock market's still open. There's other things happening, but generally, um, you know, you're, you're not going to have a lot of the high level diplomatic engagements. I mean, the, you know, the, one of the things though, is there, there are a couple of big meetings that the leadership is relatively late in holding. One is this national financial work conference, which usually happens every five years and is now hasn't happened in over six years. And that's a very important conference to set the agenda for work in the financial sector. Uh, and then there's also uh, usually every five years is a big meeting, like a central meeting on foreign affairs work. And the last one was in June of 2018. Not that these are going to happen during Beidaiha, but it's quite possible those happen soon after Beidaiha. So there would be some preparatory work being done. It's not like lots of people just stop working. Okay. So right? they're not so, just off the grid and closing the laptop for two and a half weeks or whatever. Right. I think that's not what's happening, but it's also not like, like there's some sort of mystical, mysterious meeting of the elders who sort of tell Xi Jinping what to do. Right. I and think we're beyond policy. that because I have no idea which elders could actually tell Xi Jinping what to do at this point. And I think Xi Jinping had seen how elder retired officials had influenced his predecessor and made sure that they were all effectively neutered by the time he got to his third term. Yeah, well, that's an important PSA as uh, the information slows to a trickle over the next couple of weeks. And if rumors start to proliferate about Xi being in trouble, one of the themes of the Sharp China podcast is almost never believe rumors about Xi being in trouble. Then you know? again, we could be wrong. We're not the emergency <laughs> podcast. You never yeah. know. I'll, I'll dial in from somewhere in London. I was going to say, right? they, they have internet in London. If anything particularly dramatic happens, have you ever been to Beidaiha? I told you, I went, I went along, I went in 93. Oh, wow. Um, was it stayed nice? In a nice it's, I mean, you know, we stayed at the nicest hotel you could get into then. And it was stayed, it was, it was perfectly nice. I mean, it was like sort of, the beach was kind of like Rehoboth. Okay. Um, it was fine. I mean, I could see why you'd want to spend some time up there. It was cooler than Beijing. And, and especially, you know, back in the day, like when Mao started going there, I mean, Beijing gets really hot, not even air conditioning. It's cooler by the seaside. There was a logic in, you know, going up somewhere on the ocean. It was a lot cooler. Get out of the heat. But it's got, it sort of has this myth around it now. I think one thing too, and you see it every couple of years, I think the last time was maybe three years ago, she disappeared for 15 or 16 days. He didn't appear in the People's Daily. And then people started saying, oh my God, he hasn't been in the People's Daily in 16 days. Something happened. Mm-hmm. Um, if he hasn't appeared in the People's Daily in like 20 days, maybe get worried. If he doesn't show up in the People's Daily between now and October 15th, 16th, don't assume anything other than normal course of business unless you got October some other information. or August. 15th. August, sorry. Okay. I'm <laughs> sick. I'm a yeah. little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're sick. It's August. You know what I mean? It's I want to go on vacation. <laughs> yes. We've had a good run on Sharp China yes. this summer. You've earned the vacation, Bill. Uh, go enjoy yourself um, and give my best to Tashi, as always. Uh, my parents' He's dog, be... Ollie, has been in the background of this podcast. There he come, is again. Come visit. He will be sad. He'll, he'll have a, someone with him, but he, he will want some, 
some uh, some fun. So yeah, come I, by. hopefully see him at the dog park. You know, who can say what's in store for me and Tashi this August? <laughs> uh, but what I know for sure is that Sharp China will be back in two weeks. Uh, so thank you to everybody who has listened all summer, and we'll keep it rolling later in the month, Bill. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.